Amen. But this time we'll go ahead and dismiss all of the children, all of the ankle biters, uh, the rugrats, uh, whatever you'd prefer to call them. Uh, kindergarten through fifth grade can go to kids' church at this time. <clears throat> well, I did want to encourage you, for those of you who've been keeping track, uh, we are on pace to finish Matthew in about a year and a half. Uh, so we have, uh, we've been in the book of Matthew uh, almost two years. Uh, we are about two-thirds of the way through. Uh, we are in Matthew chapter, finishing Matthew chapter 18. There are 28 chapters in Matthew. So if we stay on pace, we've only got a year and a half left and then we're through. Uh, we, we've knocked it out. So for all of those uh, who are keeping track, uh, we have... Uh, we are coming to, uh, we're only a couple weeks away from the triumphal entry of Jesus entering into Jerusalem and then the Passion Week and, and uh, you know, Maundy Thursday and Good Friday and then Jesus is crucified and then uh, we have uh, the, the resurrection, lots and lots of encouraging things uh, that are coming up in the book of Matthew. So uh, if you do have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew. As we continue to walk through the book of Matthew, we're going to be in chapter 18 uh, this morning. And while you're turning there, I haven't done this in a while, uh, so let's remind ourselves as we are studying the book of Matthew, we remember that the Bible can only mean what it meant, that the Bible cannot mean anything to us that it did not mean to its original audience, that the Bible has one and only one meaning, it has many applications, but the Bible has only one and, wo- one and only one meaning. And so we understand that the book of Matthew was written by whom? Matthew. Y'all are so bright. The book of Matthew was written by Matthew, and it was written to a very specific audience. It was written to the the Jews, and it was written with a specific theme in mind to present Jesus as the son of David. Very good. Very good. So, Matthew chapter 18, we're going to read verses 21 through 35 this morning. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? Up to seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a certain king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. And when he had begun to settle them, there was brought to him one who owed him ten thousand talents. But since he did not have the means to repay His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, falling down, prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me and I will repay you everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And when he had seized him, began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe, so that his fellow slave fell down and began to entreat him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. And he was unwilling, however, but he went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. And summoning him... The Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all of that debt because you entreated me. 
Should you also have had mercy on your fellow slave, even as I had mercy upon you? And his Lord moved with anger, handing him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. So shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Let's pray. Fathers, we're confronted with the truth of your word this morning. Lord, may we be captivated by your grace. May we be compelled by your mercy to demonstrate love and grace as we have received love and grace. Lord, may this morning, may you speak to our hearts, may you convict us of our hardness of hearts, of our bitterness and unforgiveness. May you bring us to the place of obedience. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I've titled this morning's message, How Amazing is Grace? And I don't think that most of us have a, have a realistic understanding of the amazingness of the unbelievable amount of grace that we've been shown. And I believe the reason is, is because most of us don't have a realistic understanding of how bad and how wicked and how evil our hearts really are. The problem is not most of us. The problem is not what we do. The problem is much deeper. In fact, most of us, because we live in society, most of us, because we live in society, we, we've learned how to, how to keep our nose clean. We've learned how to, how to not steal. We've learned how to not cheat, at least that we can get away with. You know, we've learned how to, how to put on the facade. We've learned how to behave rightly. But the problem is most of the time, not our behavior, but the problem is our heart. And so I pray that when you leave the place today, whenever you leave our church this morning, that you will leave with a right understanding of God's grace and in turn be gracious to others. So I want us to understand the context of this passage. Now, Jesus has just given very specific instructions about reconciling and about, about dealing with, with sin within the church. And he's done so in light of the passage, in light of the, the shepherd who leaves the 99 to go after that one wayward sheep. And we looked at last week that, that Matthew chapter 18, the, the, the section in verses, uh, verses 15 through 20 about the individual who is caught in sin, the individual who is straying from the fold of God, that this is not somebody who hurt my feelings, it's not somebody who when I asked how do I look fat in this, that they said, yeah, you could really stand to lose a few pounds. This is not somebody who has simply hurt your feelings, but this is somebody who is caught in habitual sin. This is someone who's straying from the fold of God, and it is our responsibility as believers in Christ, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, to admonish them, to bring them back to the fold of God, desiring restoration, desiring reconciliation, and desiring to see the grace of God being demonstrated in their, in their life. And so Jesus is very speaking very specifically about individuals who are caught in sin, individuals who are, who are liars, who are thieves, who are adulterers, who are murderers. Individuals just like you and I. And Jesus is admonishing his church, his, his followers, his disciples. And so Peter, thinking he's, 
he's learned what Jesus has said, comes to Jesus and says, I get it, Jesus. We're supposed to be gracious. We're supposed to be loving. We're supposed to be forgiving. So I should forgive my brother up to seven times. Now, I want us to understand the context of that statement. It was typically taught by rabbinic teaching by the rabbis within the Jewish faith at that time that that we are to forgive our brothers and sisters up to three times. That if they come and they, they sin against you, they transgress against you, that you are to forgive them up to three times. And so by Peter's making the statement, I get what you're saying, Jesus, we should be forgiving, we should be gracious. We should forgive not just three times, but we should forgive up to seven times. I get it, Jesus. I've got it figured out. And Jesus says, oh, but I wish you did. It's not seven times, but 70 times seven. Jesus admonishes even greater forgiveness than that which Peter proposes. Jesus says that our forgiveness in essence should be unlimited. So, I hope you're not keeping track, and if you're married, uh, your wives are, so, so just know uh, that, that you're probably on 483, and so you've only got a, a short leash to go, uh, but this is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying very clearly that, that no, it's not 70, but it's 70 times 7. What Jesus is saying is, is it, it is innumerable, it is it is uncountable this is not something that that we put a limit on but the forgiveness that we're to offer is unlimited why because we have been offered unlimited forgiveness and he goes in to this parable he goes into this parable i want us to unpack this parable right now and i want us to understand that our sin is exhaustive that our sin is exhaustive Jesus makes this parable. He says there was a landowner, there was a king, and this king said, you know what, I'm getting old, I need to settle my debts. I need to collect what I've loaned out, I need to settle my debts. And so there was a slave who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, for us, that means nothing. Let me put it in common vernacular today a talent is a measure of weight approximately the weight of a person so about a hundred pounds give or take now, i know many of you are saying well i wish i weighed a hundred pounds and 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 I, I i but for the sake of argument a talent was approximately a hundred pounds now a hundred pounds was, it, was, it was measured usually by precious metal, usually gold or silver. And for the sake of argument today, we're going to say that the talent was 100 pounds of gold. Now, in 2016, in 2016, the price of gold is a fixed amount and it, it, it fluctuates with the market. And if we were to, to approximate the value of one talent of gold, it would come out to be approximately $1.25 million. Now this individual owed the king not one talent, not a thousand talents, but 10,000 talents. Now let me, let me make the translation for you. This slave owner 
owed the king approximately 12.5 billion, with a B, billion dollars. He didn't just loan him some lunch money. He owed the king 12.5 billion dollars. Now, I don't think that it's that I would be able to spend $12.5 billion in my entire lifetime, yet this individual, this slave, had accrued $12.5 billion in debt. Now, Jesus, we must understand that Jesus is making an illustration. There probably wasn't a single slave who owed a king $12.5 billion, but Jesus is making an illustration he is he is telling this parable to create imagery for the hearers a slave a peasant someone who had no means someone who had no ability to repay owed 12.5 billion dollars jesus makes the statement our sin our debt Our sin is exhaustive. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says it like this. He says the heart, not our actions, not our behavior, not our thoughts, not our words, not our deeds. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? John Piper said it like this. He said our prayers... Our prayers have need to be washed in the blood of Jesus. There have been times whenever I've been sitting in a group of pastors or group of people who uh, we consider to be spiritual people. And you're praying. You're going around and they're praying and, and in your mind you're thinking, Oh, well, they haven't said this. They haven't mentioned this verse. When it comes to me, I'll I'll say this. I'll mention this. And I'll sound real theological. And the whole time I'm, I'm thinking that, it's pride. It's arrogance. It's sin. How many times have we begun to pray and we've prayed for our own self gratification? We've prayed for our own selfish desires. Our prayers have need to be washed with the blood of Jesus. At the end of Paul's life, he makes the statement to Peter, I'm sorry, to Timothy. As young Timothy was becoming a pastor, Paul encouraged him. He said as a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ in 1 Timothy chapter 1, that Jesus Christ died for sinners of whom I am the chiefest of. And I think that if we understand the Apostle Paul, that none of us would qualify Paul to be the chiefest of sinners. That here was a man who devoted his entire life to preaching the gospel, to teaching the gospels. He had been shipwrecked, he had been beaten, he had been stoned, he had been left for dead. He had given everything he had for the cause of Christ. And Paul says, I am the chiefest of sinners. Why? Because Paul understood his own depravity. How many of you have ever cleaned, you've you've ever dusted furniture? Anybody in here ever dusted furniture? And all the husbands... You know, all the husbands, if you haven't raised your hand, next week I'm going to ask that same question. You ought to be able to raise your hand. Uh, if you've ever dusted furniture, you'll, you'll dust the dining room table or you'll dust the, the bookshelves and, and you think it's clean. And then you open up the blinds and the sunshine floods the room and what do you see? You see dust. 
You see it covering the surface that you've just wiped. You see it floating in the air. You see it everywhere. Did the sunlight create the dust? Not in any way. But the sunlight revealed what was hidden. When we come to know the light of Jesus, and He shines into our lives, that which we thought was good and righteous and holy is compared to the light of Christ, and we see the wickedness, we see the depravity, we see that which is putrid in our own lives. When we understand the exhaustive nature of our sin, and we understand the the extravagance of our debt, then we have only one response. Notice the text, Matthew chapter 18. Verse 24, when he had begun to settle them, he was brought to him one who owed him 10,000 talents. Since he didn't have the means to repay, the Lord commanded him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and the repayment to be made. The slave, therefore, fell down and prostrated himself. He had no other option but to fall at the feet of the king and beg for mercy. I believe that it is not until we get to the point where we understand the exhaustive nature of our sin and we fall prostrate before our King that we ever find grace. So many many of us have come to the place in our lives where we want to bargain with God. We want to strike a deal with God. God, if you'll get me out of this circumstance or this situation, God, if you will just allow me this and that, then I will worship you all the rest of my life. I will, I will promise to, to, to tithe 10%. I will promise to bring my kids to church. I'll promise to do this and to do that. And, 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 and we strike a deal with God. Notice the slave who understood the gravity of his debt didn't try and bargain with the king. He didn't come to the king and say, all right, king, I'll work this long for you, and then my son can work this long for you, and then my daughter can work this long, and then we'll do this and we'll do that. He fell on his face and he said, have mercy upon me. Be patient, be long-suffering with me. That is the only response when we are confronted with the extravagance of our debt. This is an illustration that Jesus made. And I think most of us think, I'm a good person. I mean, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I haven't done as much as so-and-so. I'm a pretty good person. Because we don't have a right understanding of the exhaustiveness of our sin. That we are guilty. We are sinners of the most unexplainable degree. Let's have a, a, let's illustrate this just for a moment. How many of you in here have ever 
told one lie. Even if it's a small one. Even if it's a small one. Well, how many of you in here are liars? <laughs> well, how many lies does it take to be branded a liar? Is it 10? And then, you know, maybe, 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 maybe 20. And then, and then we're, we're, then we're liars. <laughs> a half of a lie, right? <laughs> no, isn't it true that one lie and you're a liar? Well, how many of you have ever stolen anything, even if it was something small? Bubble gum from the candy store? Oh, come on, you've all admitted to me you're liars. <laughs> well, what does that make you? It makes us a thief. The Scripture tells us that, that if you look at a woman to lust after her, if you look at a man, Scripture doesn't say that, but I'm taking, I'm taking uh, uh, some liberties there. If you look at a woman or a man with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Well, what does that make us? Adulterers. Scripture also tells us in Matthew chapter 5 that if you look at your brother with hatred in your heart, that you've committed murder. Now, if we're all honest with ourselves, we're all lying, thieving, adultering, murderers. But we're not really that bad. Well, I'm not as bad as, I mean, you should see my co-worker. But the standard is not our co-worker. The standard of righteousness is Jesus. In fact, in Hebrews it says that God will judge all mankind against the righteousness of His Son. And compared to the righteousness of Jesus, oh my goodness, my depravity, my, my, the heart above all else is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And, and, and you don't even know my thought life. You don't, you, the rest of the world is not privy to what goes on in between my ears. The rest of the world is not privy to, to, to what happens deep in the recesses of my heart and the secret places. When we understand the exhaustiveness of our sin, we come to grips with the reality of the debt that we owe. That there is an ex extravagant debt and that we are saddled with $12.5 billion worth of debt and we don't have the means to repay it. The only response that the slave had was to fall at the feet of the king and beg for mercy. I want us to understand the grace that we've been shown through Christ is so amazing, it has the potential to be abused. If you notice, Christ died for sin. Go with me, if you will, to the book of John chapter 1. I'm sorry, Brother Chris, I didn't give you this one. John chapter 1, verse 29. Very simple illustration. Very simple grammatical theological point I want to point out. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus topping the hill, and he says, Behold, look, look, the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. Now if we look at this verse, the word sin, is it singular or is it plural? Singular. 
Because Jesus' death upon the cross did not take away our individual transgressions, but took away sin, the disease, paid for the penalty of disease, justified us, cleansed us from all unrighteousness, paid for all of our sin, past, present, and future. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. The only reason that we should not perish but have everlasting life is because the sin debt that you and I owed, the $12.5 billion debt, the extravagant debt that you and I owed because of our sin was paid on our behalf. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when Jesus hung on a cross and said it is finished, it is paid in full, the debt that was owed, that to telestai is a Greek financial term, paid in full, when Jesus hung on the cross and said, to telestai, it is paid in full, it is finished, the debt is paid, he was making a a declaration that there is no longer any debt that is owed, that the wrath of God that was due mankind, the wrath of God that was due you and I because of the exhaustiveness of our sin, was paid. It was satisfied. He, uh, Isaiah chapter 53 says, The Lord saw the travail of his soul and was satisfied. The payment was made. The wrath of God was, was placated. Jesus satisfied. He paid the debt that you and I owed. Now, we understand that God is in his very character, and his very nature. He's just, he is right, he is holy. Now let me ask a very simple question. If if a judge, a righteous, holy judge, were to judge, were to pass out judgment upon a crime that had been paid for, a debt that had been paid for, would that judge be a just judge? No. If the debt to society had already been paid, then the judge would not be just to exercise judgment against that crime. And so when Christ hung from the cross and made the statement, it is finished, it is paid in full, all those who place their faith and trust in Jesus have their sin debt satisfied, justified, God made it just as if I'd never sinned, then for God to now punish believers for sin would be unjust. And we know that God is never going to go against His character, so we understand that the grace of God is such that we as believers in Christ can do whatever we want and know that it is covered by the grace of God. The grace of God is so amazing, it has the potential to be abused. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, Paul understood the grace of God in a very real way. Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was a murderer of Christians. If you go back and you look at Acts chapter uh, chapter 7, whenever Stephen was stoned to death, it tells us that they laid their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Saul was overseeing the murder, the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr in the Christian church. Paul understood the grace of God. 
And he said, the grace of God is so amazing that, that I can do whatever I want because I'm covered by the grace of God. But shall we continue in sin and let grace abound? May it never be. How so you who have died to sin continue to live any longer in it? Paul understood the grace of God is so amazing and has the potential to be abused. And so he warned against the abuse of God. If you've been saved from, by grace from sin, then you, cannot, you can no longer be a slave to sin. The grace of God is so amazing. I want us to understand, church, first, how exhaustive our sin is, how extravagant our debt is, and how unbelievably exemplary the, the forgiveness of God is. His forgiveness is exemplary. Early in the 20th century, there was a car company that had devoted all of its resources to developing the epitome of, of a luxury vehicle. And they came to the conclusion that, that, that we're going to make the greatest luxury vehicle of all time. And this company was called Rolls-Royce. And they created this company out of London. They, they created the Rolls-Royce and a very wealthy individual very wealthy individual bought the first Rolls Royce. He was from America. So they put this car on a boat, crossed the Atlantic Ocean, they delivered the epitome of luxury to this individual. Well, he was driving across the United States, loving his new luxury vehicle, when not long after he had purchased it, it broke down, left him stranded. So he makes a phone call across the Atlantic Ocean to the company and says, uh, we have a problem. This car that I've spent untold amount of fortune on no longer works. So Rolls-Royce flew a mechanic across the Atlantic Ocean to repair this man's vehicle. Repaired the vehicle, replaced the broken parts, flew back to London, well, the owner of the vehicle said, you know, it's odd. I never got an invoice. I never got a, a bill. Certainly, it's going to cost me a lot of money for this spe specifically trained mechanic to fly across the Atlantic Ocean to fix this vehicle and to fly back. Certainly, I, I'm going to get hit with a bill. And he waited, and weeks went by, months went by, nothing. You never heard anything from, from Rolls-Royce. So he called him. He said, uh, I had... A vehicle and, and you guys repaired it and I need to know, I need to pay for these repairs. Rolls-Royce said, hold on one second, sir. Let us check our records. And as they're flipping through their, their records, they come back and they say, I'm sorry, sir. We have no record of there ever being anything wrong with your vehicle. Go with me, if you will, to the book of Psalms. Verse 103. I'm sorry, chapter 103. Verses 8 through 12. The grace of God is epitomized in this passage. Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins 
nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. I'm sorry, there is no longer any record of your transgression. When the Lord of glory gave His life to pay your sin debt, God looked down from heaven and was satisfied. And now, looks at you and says, I'm sorry. There is no longer any record of your transgression. You are justified. You are right and holy and blameless in the sight of God. There is no longer any record of your transgression. You say, but preacher, you don't know what I've done. I don't care. There is no longer any record of your transgression. So far as the east is from the west, so far as He removed my transgression from me. Such is the grace of our God. And when we understand the exhaustive nature of our sin, when we understand the the, the twisted, deceitful wickedness of our heart, and we understand the extravagance of our debt, and we are taken to the grace of God, we ought to be overwhelmed by grace. We ought to be humbled by grace. We ought to be completely blown away by the grace of God. And then we come back to Matthew 18 and we say, What does this mean? Shall we forgive our brother seven times? No. So great has the grace of God been demonstrated to us, our natural response is to be gracious to others. So much so that we forgive not seven times, but 70 times seven. You say, but preacher, you don't know what they did to me. No, but I know what I did to my Lord. Because we have been shown grace, we should show grace. Because we have been shown grace, we should show grace. I'm going to close with a couple of passages of Scripture where Paul encourages the church with this. The church at Ephesians. The church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 4. Paul spent more time with the church at Ephesus than he did with any other church. Church was the most theologically sound, most doctrinally sound church that Paul ever taught. And he leaves them with this admonition in verse 32 of chapter 4. He says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. How? Just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Paul's admonition to the church at Colossians, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. 
Whoever has a complaint against anyone, how? Just as the Lord forgave you. The natural human response is to hold grudges, to be bitter, to be angry. I'm so thankful that God isn't inclined to those human tendencies. That He's not angry, He's not bitter, He's not petty. I pray this morning that understanding the great grace that we've been shown, that we'd be gracious to others. In just a few moments, we're going to have a a hymn of invitation. As we do, maybe this morning, for the very first time, you've realized the extravagance of the grace of God. You've realized the exhaustiveness of your debt and your sin. And the grace of God has just hit you like a freight train. If that's you this morning, I would invite you to come and experience the grace of God. Let's pray. God, it is amazing that a holy, just God can look upon my sin and cover it with the blood of Jesus. Can look upon my wicked heart through the shed blood of Your Son and see me as righteous. It is amazing that though my sin be as scarlet, You've made them as white as snow. It is amazing that You loved me while I was yet a sinner. This morning, this morning, if you've never trusted Christ for your salvation, if you've never let go of your fear, your guilt, your shame, you've been trying to be good enough, I want to invite you to come and embrace the grace that is in Christ. That there's nothing you can do to earn or deserve God's favor because Jesus has already done it. And I want to invite you to come trust Jesus. Maybe this morning, maybe you've been holding on to bitterness, holding on to unforgiveness, holding on to anger. And you need to come to this altar and you need to just ask God to give you grace that you may be gracious with others. Maybe this morning God is speaking to your heart. Telling you that Redeemer is the place that you need to call home. Whatever it is the Lord is speaking to your heart this morning, may today be the day of decision. God, we pray this morning that you would wrap us in your loving arms and you would demonstrate your grace to us. May your Holy Spirit have his way in this place this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.